Now they can. Oh, okay, now you can hear us. Never gosh, mind. Sorry we were just about talking. That. We were just talking football Mona and stuff. Says so we looked like we were being so funny. Yeah, we are funny. We, were. we are funny. We're talking football. Kansas City Chiefs. Really quick. Pat, that, that Patrick was, Mahomes. Yes. Patty's boy. He's my boy. He <laughs> is my boy, and he's just so adorable, and he's such a great athlete, and so. Even though the Cowboys did so poorly, this has made it yeah. a lot more fun to keep watching football. And I will be praying heavily that he wins next weekend so <laughs> that I'll have somebody to root for in the Super Bowl. Of course, Scott, he's cheering on the Lions. He's well, like, I, 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 just because they're just, win. you know, they were, a, they were a team when I was a little boy watching a few NFL games. You know, they were one of the... Stalwarts in the old NFL back in the fifties, and we were talking but then the really Super Bowl old. came, and that was it that for was them. It. They just have never done anything since. So, so anyway, it's well, interesting. But thanks for hanging in there. Thank you so many yeah, people for telling us we had no sound. You know, you know what happened? I tried to hit the right buttons on the screen without my glasses on. Oh, that's a problem. That didn't work. Okay, so now I need to be looking <laughs> over when you hit the button. Just yeah, to be it, sure. we got to have that green bar. Yes. And you have to see us. And if you see us and you see the green bar, we're good. Then we're in good shape. Okay, but we're good. There was no green bars. Hope Hence, you all are doing everybody well. Everybody being helpful. On this kind of dreary, chilly Monday, we were saying how grateful we are that it wasn't colder and that we didn't get ice, but yeah. it's it's not so pretty. But uh, that's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's winter. It it's is winter. winter. It's, we, we almost always can use rain around here. Yes, so I know. That's your motto. We always need well, rain. Well, you know, I've lived in Texas a long time. Yeah. Me too. Oh, yeah. Don't ever get quite enough rain here. So anyway, well. I guess we're probably ready to delve back into numbers. It is a pretty wild ride. You yes. know, I have to say. And there are many things that I've never been very clear about. When it comes to some of the priests and the Levites and things we'll talk about today, but it it this it's all bringing it together together and making it clear to me, and so it's pretty cool, I think. And I'm just glad so many people wanted to make this ride. Yes, it is like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. It I say is. through the it Book is. of Numbers, it but is. we will go on today and hear some of the wild things. I guess they're wild. Anyway, let's let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. It's cold outside, but we're we're in, and we're here gathered together um, as best we can to to study Your Word and just to take some time out of our busy week to come to this very old, ancient book of Numbers, helping us to get in touch with our spiritual forebears, the ancient Israelites who thousands of years ago, and we just pray that your Holy Spirit will open this up for us, help us to make some connections, and help us to uh, to really accept this as your word and, and grasp better what that means. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, I was thinking about that because by tradition, Moses wrote the first five books. Yes. And so when you think about that, obviously these stories were passed down and passed down and passed down before they were written down, but they were all written down by the time, way before, but certainly by the time Jesus was born. Oh, long before. That's it, what I'm saying. The, these books had all been settled by five, six hundred years before Jesus. Wow. Yes, wow. yes. So that's kind of all just amazing, really. It is. It, and today amazing. we're going to be back in some of that weird ancient stuff. 
So they were already, I mean, these texts go back 1,500 years before Jesus was born. I mean, they yes. were ancient, ancient yes. stories. That always just, you know, makes my mind kind of go, wow. Kind of like thinking that when Mary and Joseph took infant baby Jesus to Egypt, they walked possibly by the pyramids, which had already been there forever. 2,500 years. Does that not blow your mind? It blows my mind. It does. The really Great does. Pyramid is older, predates Abraham. Gosh, really? Yep. It's amazing. Yep, it is. They had skills. Some skills <laughs> that we don't even know how they did what they did all these years yeah. later. So, all righty. Cheap human labor is probably the it's biggest very sad about that thing part. that they had. All right, friends. So here we are in the 18th chapter of Numbers. We're going to begin at the 20th verse, I think it is. Let me just open this up. Yeah. So, the way the Israelite camp was set up was, as I've said many times, it's like concentric circles from outside the camp, into the camp with the, with the 12 tribes, and then to the Levites and the, the priests, the tents of Aaron and his sons, the priests, and then finally you get to the tent of meetings. So it's like, um, kind of like a pebble dropped in a pond with these circles that go that go outward. And that's kind of what we're doing now because chapter 17 was focused on the priests and chapter 18 we're in now was on the priests and the Levites. And we get to be chapter 19. It's really going to be about the priests, the Levites, and all of the lay people. And uh, so it's it's still this idea of sort of moving outward and moving inward, um, all focused around the tent of meeting. So where we left off last week, we were did not start um, Numbers eighteen verse twenty because this it's a kind of a little break there because this is we're not, we're now going to be talking about the fact that the Levites, um, the tribe of Levi and all their descendants are not going to get an, an allotment of land when they get to the promised land. Okay? Verse 20. Yahweh said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. So the tribes are going to be allocated land, but not the priests, not the Levites. Um, verse 21, I give to the Levites all the tithes, tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. So remember the way this is set up at this time. Okay, You have the priests who are doing the rituals. The, the Levite tribes are supporting the priests and they're doing all of the labor and all of the work. Well, how are they all going to be supported? They're going to be supported by the tithes from the other tribes. There you go. From now on, the Israelites must not go near the tent of meeting or they will bear the consequences of their sin and will die. The closer you get to the tent of meeting, the more you are stepping onto 
holy ground, the closer you are getting to the sun, to use this metaphor that I overwork. And so the average Levite from the tribe of Reuben or the tribe of Dan are going to need to respect and keep their distance. It's maybe a little bit like when they arrived at Mount Sinai and they were told not to touch the mountain of God or they would die because it was a holy mountain. They were getting too close to the presence of God and they, they, they aren't ready for it. They can't do it. So here again, um, the Israelites are not to go too near to the tent of meeting. Verse 23, it is the Levites who are to do the work at the tent of meeting. That is the way God set it up and bear the responsibility for any offenses they commit against it. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. They, the Levites, will receive no inheritance among the Israelites. And inheritance was focused principally on land. So they are not going to get land. They're going to live off the tithes um, of animals or grain given by the other tribes. Um, verse 24, instead, God says, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to Yahweh. That's why I said concerning them, they will have no inheritance among the Israelites. So the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Levites and say to them, when you receive from the Israelites the tithe I give you as your inheritance, you must present a tenth of that tithe. So let's just take, take the tithe as one-tenth. Let's make it one-tenth. So they're to take one-tenth of what they receive, right, which is one-tenth of what the, what the tribes have. Which should be the, their best, right? Their best, and, right? You must present a tenth of that tithe as the Lord's offering. Your offering will be reckoned to you as grain from the threshing floor or juice from the wine press, and this way you will also present an offering to Yahweh from all the tithes you receive from the Israelites. From these tithes you must give Yahweh's portion to Aaron the priest. You must present as Yahweh's portion the best, as Patty just said, the holiest part of everything given to you. No leftovers. No, no, you know, seconds, none of that. The best. What do you give to God? You give to God your best. Not whatever's left over, not what you got a little bit of time set aside to just do nothing with, you know. No, you give God your best. Verse 30. Say to the Levites, when you present the best part, it will be reckoned to you as the product of the threshing floor or the wine press. You and your households may eat the rest of it anywhere, for it is your wages for your work at the tent of meeting. So they are going to get tithes from the tribes. They're going to take a tithe of that, and they're going to give that over to the priests as the specific offering to Yahweh, which will be for the good of the priests. Verse 32, by presenting the best part of it, you will not be guilty in this matter. Then you will not defile the holy offering of the Israelites, and you will not die. <laughs> that almost sounds like a warning. It is a warning. Yeah. The whole thing here is one big warning. God is holy. 
and you're not. And that, that, because the question is, you have the creator of the cosmos, the creator of all that is, who has chosen these people, this family of Abraham, to be the ones that God works through to reconcile humanity, and this God is holy. And how could it be that this God could come live with this sinful, defiled, rebellious people? As all humans are sinful and rebellious, how, could, how, how can this be accomplished? How could God dwell with them as God does? in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. You know that's the question in the mind of the Israelites. How could this be? Well, all of these systems are set up to enable that. But they all begin with the recognition that God is holy and they are not. And there are offerings and there are restrictions and there are consequences and it's, I think it's easy to see the consequences as arbitrary. I think that's a mistake. There's nothing arbitrary that says if you got too close to the sun, you would die. The sun is hot. It's fire. And if you get too close, you will simply be consumed by that fire, by that heat. Well, God is holy. And if these sinful people get too close to God without the preparations and practices and rituals to enable them to approach God, even if it's just a few of them to approach God, then they will die. We, I think in our day, and particular, you know, I think in light of Jesus, but particularly in our day, um, it is hard for us to really comprehend the holiness of God, right? We can, we can treat God too casually because we do know that God took on human flesh. But we can still take God too, too casually. God is holy. And what Jesus has accomplished for us is enabling us to stand in the presence of a holy God. And without Jesus, we would be no better off than these ancient Israelites. But that's why there's so much connection between the book of Hebrews, which is focused on Jesus, and all of these weird Old Testament rites and rituals. That, that's the connection. With, that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. That It, it isn't that, that these things weren't important. It's just that they've come to their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Now that you've got Jesus, you don't need any of this stuff anymore. But without Jesus, you would. You would. You would. You would. So... Okay. Um, 
So, anybody got thoughts or questions before we go on to chapter 19? Um, no, no. Okay. So, I'll bet you that some of you have heard about the red heifer. Patty, have you ever heard I've about heard of the red heifer? The red heifer. But the you're going to have to explain that the to red, me. Well, it's just, it's, for some people, um, some Christians even, it gets very connected. The red heifer gets very connected like to the end times and all this stuff, and I don't understand any of that. But the red heifer is where we're coming to now, and the red heifer is a part of this process. So I need to, to talk about this. So, in general, before we look at the specifics of it, so, a heifer, for those of you who are as much of a city guy as I am, a heifer is a young bovine, a young cow that has, it's probably between one and two years old, it's no longer a calf, but it has never given birth. Once it, once it, once it gives birth, you'll just call it a cow. But in the time between being a calf and giving birth, it's a heifer. That's just what that's just the language we use. And Mona's giving you the thumbs up. Yeah, thank you, Mona. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this will be a red heifer that looks something like. Let me see. I have a slide here of a little red. I'll come back. There we go. A little red heifer. I don't know if the animal's a little too young to be a heifer, Aww. but look at that. So the cute. key is the heifer is red, and the heifer's, well, the heifer's going to play an important part that the heifer probably would prefer not to play. Um, this entire section is about dealing with death. Death was a special kind of contaminant in the ancient world. It polluted the things around it, not just for the Israelites, but for other ancient Near Eastern peoples. Um, probably in part connected to the underworld where the dead lived and stuff like that. For the Israelites, death came because of the sin in the garden, right? Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, and so God has told them, you know, when you eat this fruit, you will surely die, and so death becomes part of it. When Paul reflects on that, he says, just remember that the wages of sin is death. So death and rebellious sinful people are all tied up together, and death looms large. For, I think, everybody, but ancient peoples, they don't have a lot of explanations for much of the death that happens. I mean, we got explanations coming out the wazoo. Sometimes we think we know. Other times we are brave enough to admit we don't know what has gone wrong with somebody. or But we know all about disease and infirmities and heart you know, clogged arteries and all this other stuff. We can peer inside somebody's body with all kinds of scan and see what's going wrong. They have none of that. And 
what they have been experiencing is death. And they're going to experience a lot more death because an entire generation is going to die before they reach the promised land. Right? Because God has said to them, you don't trust me, you're not going to enter the promised land when I tell you to? Okay, fine. Then you're just going to wander around until you die off and your children will enter the promised land. So that that's where we are, we are in this. And so this... This chapter is about dealing with death, and there are several New Testament connections we'll make along the way, okay? Okay. So, Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, this is a requirement of the law that Yahweh has commanded. Tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer. Now, Scholars will tell you that the word doesn't have to be heifer. It, it's, it's really not specific enough to just be a heifer, but that's a traditional translation of it. It is a female cow. Maybe the writer originally intended it to be a um, heifer, but in any event, it's always referred to as a red heifer. Okay? Bring you a red heifer without defect or blemish, of course, right? And that has never been under a yoke, so... No no calf has never pulled a yoke. Uh, red heifer. There we go. Let's look at our little buddy again here. See? Right there. Never gave birth. Never never pulled a yoke before. Just and perfect and unblemished. And that, that heifer looks pretty perfect to me. Give it, give the red heifer to Eleazar the priest. Now, Eleazar is one of the sons of Aaron. So give it to Eleazar, not to Aaron. Give it to Eleazar the priest. Why? Well, maybe it's probably just to show that the priesthood is going to carry on after Aaron passes, which is actually not that far down the road. Give it to Eleazar the priest. It is to be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. So that's interesting. So let me go to my little slides here. Go back. Okay, there's there's kind of a diagram. We've seen one like this before. The tent of meeting, the um, the Levites on three sides, uh, Moses, Aaron, the priests on the fourth side, um, and uh, the tribes arrayed around it. And if you drew a big circle around this, that would be the camp. So this animal is to be taken outside the camp and to be slaughtered outside the camp, away from the priests, away from the tent of meeting. So what does that mean? Well, that means this is going to involve lay people. It doesn't have to be happening inside the tent of meeting. It doesn't have to be happening inside the tabernacle. Take it outside, take it outside the camp and slaughter that cute little heifer. Then Eleazar the priest is to take some of its blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. So he's going to take blood and he's going to sprinkle it seven times back in the direction of the tent of meeting. Maybe he walks closer to the back, enters back the camp and goes to the tent of meeting and shakes it off his finger. But seven times. Why seven times? Well, seven is the number of wholeness and perfection and completeness. That's probably what that's about. And he's 
after he does that, verse 5, while he watches the heifer. So, what, honey? I'm very sorry. One of you had, um, you stopped working on my big computer and I was just trying to pick you up on my phone. Huh. Okay. Well, that's weird. I'm sorry. Perhaps the reference is like a virgin woman, a.k.a. Mary. Which reference, Mona, I wonder? Maybe when you were calling it the young red heifer kind of thing. Oh, I've never seen that connection anywhere. The the heifer would be, um, yeah, I think it's uh, having never given birth, having never um, pulled a yoke is probably along with it free of blemishes and all of that. But you know, you could be right because ends up Jesus ends up being connected with this in in the book of Hebrews, not to the virgin part of it but just to the efficacy of this of this sacrifice so but that's a good thought mona yep as all yours are okay so verse five now while he while eliezer watches the heifer is to be burned it's hide it's flesh it's blood it's intestines everything that is the most complete description of burning every single part of the animal. The most complete description in all of the Old Testament law. Every single bit of that slaughtered heifer is to be burned. Burned, burned, burned. The priest is to take some cedar wood, some hyssop, some scarlet wool, uh, crimson, red, red wool, and throw them onto the burning heifer. Cedar wood, hyssop, scarlet wool, red wool, those are also purifying elements. They're used in other purification practices. When, during the Exodus, when they were told to spread the blood of a lamb around the doorway, they were told to do it with hyssop. Let me show you hyssop. I have a slide actually today about hyssop. Okay. Here's, here's a sprig. Here's a little bit of hyssop. Here's the deal about hyssop. What makes it good as a something to sprinkle on and stuff with is that, or spread blood like happened in the Exodus is because the plant, the leaves and stuff are all kind of like furry. You know, they have like a little hair, a little hair, a little fur on it. So they will retain liquid. But that's what it is. That, this is fresh. Obviously, it's often seen dried, but I, I, I went with the fresh one here. It's kind of pretty, the, the little flowers there. So the hyssop, the cedar wood, the, the, the red crimson wool is tossed into this fire. It's all burned up together. And verse 7, after that, the priest must wash his clothes, bathe himself with water. He may then come into the camp, but he will be ceremonial unclean till evening. Maybe that's why Aaron didn't do this. Because, you know, the priest is kind of knocked out of business for the day. Yes. The man, who, verse 8, the man who burns it must also wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he too will be unclean till evening. All these little bits, you know, all these little bits of clean and unclean, clean and unclean, holy, not holy, pure, impure. That's what's happening. Verse 9, a man who is clean, 
who hasn't done these things, shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and put them in a ceremonial clean place outside the camp. Well, now what does that further tell you? That this is about lay people. Because the tribes can all go there. If they, if they carted these ashes back into the tabernacle, the lay people would have no access to them. Yes. So the ashes are going to be kept outside the camp. They are to be kept by the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. It is for purification from sin. And what is the essence of sin? Rebellion against God. So, verse 10, the man who gathers up the ashes of the heifer must also wash his clothes, and he too will be unclean till evening. This will be a lasting ordinance, both for the Israelites and for the foreigners residing among them. So, this is something, this is going to be a purification ritual that will encompass all of the Israelites something that the lay people can do and even the foreigners among them are included in this. Verse 11, here we go. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. So, what's a just... Think of a biblical connection there to the New Testament, to Jesus. Um, not being able to touch Jesus' body after sundown. On that's one. That, that's why it's women's work. What's another one? <laughs> what happened to the parable of the Good Samaritan? Same thing. Priest, Priest and Levite, right and they walk by the guy because if he's dead, they're going to be ceremonial unclean for seven days. They're going to lose a whole week. So they won't, they won't touch the person lying there just in case they're dead. Yeah, yeah. So these things were living on, not exactly the same, but living on in Jesus' day. Now, verse 12. They must purify them. This person who touched a, a, a corpse, they must purify themselves with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then they will be clean. Now, what, what water is that? Look back up at verse 9. What, are they, what did they do with the ashes? Brought it outside the camp. And right, and they're going to mix it with the water. Mm -hmm. That's what's... So is... I, we may get to it, and but I'm just going to ask. Is this, this slaughtering of this young red heifer, is this a one-time thing that was done? Or is this going to have to be something that's done every time we run out of this... Every time you run out water. of ashes, you're going to need more ashes. Okay. Right? I'm it's, guessing. I'm, I'm guessing there's going to be a lot of, you know, yeah. Good point, Patty. You okay, know, it's I not just, a one-time thing yeah. because this is how they deal with the contamination of death in the community. It, see, it, I mean, if you just pick this up and look, I mean, this is ancient stuff. This is ancient, like weird superstitious stuff death is death is 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 such a present reality with them there's nothing antiseptic about it nothing um in in our world too often we want to push it away and people imagine that they won't be touched by it but these people live with it and 
they for them it is a contaminant in the living community because there are the dead and there are the living the dead and the living and ne'er the twain shall meet so verse 13 if they fail to purify themselves after touching a human corpse they defile the lord's tabernacle they must be caught off from israel which means you you go outside the camp you go make a new life for yourself someplace else because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them they are unclean their uncleanness remains on them all right so they they make the water the water's got the ashes that's and this is something that people can just do to make themselves clean again if they've had to you know touch a human corpse it's pretty wild isn't it Verse 14, this is the law that applies when a person dies in a tent. Anyone who enters the tent and anyone who is in it will be unclean for seven days. It's like the contamination of death just floats in the air. And every open container without a lid fastened on it will be unclean because the contamination of death is going to settle into that open bucket of water. Wow. Okay, anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who has died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. That's all-encompassing. This is a ritual to wash away the contamination of sin to strengthen the barrier between the living and the dead. For the unclean person, here it's spelled out in a little more detail, put some ashes from the burned purification offering into a jar and pour fresh water over them. Then a man who is ceremonial clean, ceremonial clean is to take some hyssop, that plant, dip it in the water, and sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and all the people who were there. He must also sprinkle anyone who has touched a human bone or a grave or anyone who has been killed or anyone who has died a natural death. The man who is clean is to sprinkle those who are unclean when? On the third and seventh day of this week of uncleanness. Those who are being cleansed must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and that evening they will be clean. But if those who are unclean do not purify themselves following this strict ritual, they must be cut off from the community because they have defiled the sanctuary of God. The whole camp is the sanctuary of God in this sense. The whole camp is, is holy, you see, and it just becomes ever more holy as you get ever closer to the tent of meeting and ever closer to the holiest of holies. But still, the whole camp is, is a sanctuary, um, the sanctuary of Yahweh. 
The water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them, and they are unclean. They can't stay. You can't stay if you are contaminated by death. That's what it amounts to, doesn't it, Patty? Yes. Yeah. Yes. This is a lasting ordinance for them. Further, that word's not there, but further, the man who sprinkles the water of cleansing must also wash his clothes. And anyone who touches the water of cleansing will be unclean until evening. Well, thank heavens, it's only till evening. And then I guess it just kind of, this a little bit of, of residue of contamination carried by being the one who does the, the, the sprinkling and so forth, it, it passes by the end of the day. Anything that an unclean person touches becomes unclean, and anyone who touches it becomes unclean till evening. Clean, unclean. Holy, not holy. Pure, impure. That's what these purification rites are about. I have a... Okay. Yeah. No one else may be thinking this, and I may be uh, silly for thinking this, but... We go to such great lengths explaining how this heifer is to be sacrificed in great detail and all about the bathing and, you know, this and that. And then we come up to where a man who does not have to be a priest, who is clean, shall gather up the ashes and put them in a ceremonially clean place outside the camp. So there that the whole Israelite community can use this right, water. Right, right. It gives... To me, like, I want to know, what is this kept in? Where is it kept? This obviously has to be something that you would think was almost guarded 24 hours a day by Israelites that nobody gets in and takes the last of this, the ashes, before we get new ashes to cleanse again. I mean, this the ashes from this heifer are so sacred it seems like to me how they're needed for this and there's so little telling us who's taking care of them once they're well, brought out into the they're middle. not so sacred that they're not available to the lay people this is this is not a priestly ritual yes it, no, I understand all, all it says is just a man the, the only requirement is that the man who does the sprinkling and all that stuff be ceremonial clean himself right so I, i'll bet you're right I bet they came up with a way to ensure that the ashes and the water were looked after as yes. it's that. But, you know. Kept the ashes were kept right? dry in a certain spot because you're taking the ashes out and mixing them with water, water and then doing the hyssop yeah. stuff. So it, it just sort of surprises me. It seems like so many other things were so careful about how things are kept and made and we go through this whole long, detailed thing how to come up with these ashes, and now we're told how often these ashes are needed, which is a lot. Because people yeah, die. people are dying. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a good that point. I'll bet they came up with a way to accomplish They had to have a way to accomplish all that because they would know that they needed to protect the ashes they had, right? Right. Now, I, don't, I don't know how long, you know, how many how much ash how much ash they put in water and all that stuff but you get certainly you certainly get the idea maybe they ended up using very little ash in the water but it, it all still carries the same point 
um, this this red heifer. Why red? Why not a black cow? Why a red heifer? Because you see, red is the color of blood. Blood is life. If you, right? Um, if you lose your blood, you're dead. Blood is life. So that's probably why the heifers to be red. That's why the wool put in there is to be crimson or red. This other element. A purification. But okay, so I'm reading something very... Um, somebody had asked online about a red heifer also. Yes. And about how rare is a red heifer and things like that. And the answer has come back from one expert that it's really not that, that rare. But the Torah gives us a list of, of criteria for this red heifer. I guess it must go into, you know, a lot of detail. The cow must be at a minimum within its third year of life, two years plus a bit. It needs to be completely red. Even two hairs of a different color next to each other or three that are far apart disqualify it from being a red heifer. All physical blemishes disqualify sacrificial animals and a red heifer. Just any work that's done with it disqualifies the cow. Work in this case indicates even a person leaning on it or placing a <laughs> garment or cloth upon it unless this was done to only safeguard the animal itself. Placing a yoke on the cow, even if it doesn't actually do any work, also disqualifies it. So so let me ask you. So are all of those things spelled out in what we just read? No. No. But it must be in detail in the law. I don't think it is. That's an example of where the law is later interpreted okay. and taken to be, well, you know, when we say perfect, we mean not even two hairs could be white on this heifer. It, it flies in the face of the reality that if you really implemented this among a numerous people, you would need a lot of heifers. People die. I mean, I don't know how long the ashes from a single heifer would last, but, you know, we're told in the book of Exodus that there's two million people in this community. Now, that's very much hyperbolic, but still, um, it's it's kind of like, you know, the the they're told you, you're not to work on the Sabbath in the law, right? Yes. But by the time you get to Jesus' day, that means you can't, even break off a little piece of wheat off a stalk and chew on it while you're walking through the field on a Sabbath. That's a whole bunch of interpretational stuff that Jesus came and was just sweeping away. Okay. Well, yeah, this, this little particular thing that I'm looking up is, is going back and reading some older messianic um messianic aged um, yeah and there's all things. this end time stuff built around yes. red heifers I, I don't get all and of in that some of these ancient writings they claim that there was only actually nine perfect red heifers ever yeah ever found and yeah. that, that that went all the way up to the destruction of the second temple only because, nine because so little ash was actually used from yeah. each animal well i don't know just kind of maybe wild thing. i don't know Who knows? i just i just know what what 
we humans did with the other parts of the law. Diane, Diana Reese pointed out, say she said Carl said it sounds like scrubbing in for surgery. Yeah. All these little things you have to do, and if right. you mess any of them up, well, you got to start it all over again. So, I, you know, for me, the red heifer is all about. What is it about? What is it about? This, the, these paragraphs are about God is holy. They are not, and they have to be prepared in very specific ways to enable God to dwell with them. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Yep. And, and that we see that in, in lots of, of pieces. Okay. So Norm was wondering, are these animals community property? Hmm. Well, I don't know. I don't know what the source of the heifers. Do they... I wouldn't be surprised if they ended up really having red cow-specific herds that they would use to generate red heifers. Don't know. Good question. So, Mona notes, this is Hebrews, that the cleansing... In Hebrews, what the writer of Hebrew does... Hebrews does. He takes, he says, like, here's here's what it is. I'll paraphrase it. Like, okay, back then we used blood from bulls and cows and the rest of it, and we used those and sacrificed them and stuff to 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 create this purification, this cleanness. But just imagine what the blood of Christ has done. If we now have the blood of Christ. How could we possibly go back to the blood of a heifer? Yes. That's what it, that's the case Hebrews makes all the way through. I know you had this stuff, but you don't need it anymore. Now you have Jesus. You don't need a priest anymore. You can't have a better priest than Jesus. You don't need sacrifices anymore. You can't have a better sacrifice than Jesus. All that's what the book Hebrews is. That's why you can't really make a lot of sense of Hebrews unless you know more about the Old Testament and the law of Moses. Hebrews isn't really something to just sort of casually walk into or you will just dance dance on the surface of it. Okay. Wow. Anything else there? about those red heifers, huh? Those red heifers, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of Wild. an interesting thing. Okay. Now... Now we're going to move in chapter 20 to some, to narrative, story. Things are going to happen. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. So who is Miriam? This is like a Jeopardy question. Up. They don't ask questions. They only give answers. Miriam is Moses' sister. Okay, Moses' sister. What is she most noted for? The song that she sings, the poem in Exodus 15 about the Exodus and, and, and God's salvation. So to go to a map, I did bring a few maps. Let me see. There we go. So, you know, they're up there in the north, 
just south of the Negev, there, there in that area, um, Kadesh Barnea, and a little bit north of there, where they refuse to enter the Promised Land and then will <clears throat> have to wander 40 years. So that's where they are. And Miriam, Moses' sister, has now died, and she's buried there. Verse 2. <clears throat> now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. Well, we've heard this story. We've played this song before, haven't we? Yes, we have. In fact, water is one of the things that they complain about right after the Exodus. Right after the Exodus, when they go to the Sinai wilderness, they complain about water, and um, they God gives them manna. They can they complain about food, and God gives them manna. Then they complain about water, and God tells Moses to strike a rock, and water comes gushing out, and they have water. So here they are complaining again about water, which is understandable because these are desert wilderness areas. These are not areas that people, large groups of people, want to try to survive in. So, verse 3, they quarreled with Moses and said, Oh, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before Yahweh. Why did you bring Yahweh's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It's got no grain. It's got no figs. No grapevine. No pomegranates. There's no water to drink, Moses. Verse 6. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. These two brothers... Moses and Aaron go to the opening into the tent. They fall face down, and the glory of Yahweh appeared to them. God's presence is in some way made manifest to them. And Yahweh said to Moses, Take the staff. This is, you know, Moses' staff, famous in the movies, right? Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. Speaking, the power of words, the power of God's word. Um, always notice that in Genesis, how does God create? He speaks it. He speaks it all into existence. and then pronounces it good. There's not any story about God picking up this and that and fashioning this and that with God's hands and things until you come to the humans. But God speaks creation into existence. Speak to the rock, and the water will come bursting forth. So, verse 9, all right, going to have a solution here. So Moses took the staff from Yahweh's presence, just as he commanded him, and he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, 
Must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff, and water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. Well, okay. There's a problem there. What's the problem? What did God tell Moses to do? Speak to the rock. What does Moses do? Hits the rock. Hits the rock. He doesn't speak to the rock. He hits the rock. That is a big problem. Verse 12, But Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. And sure enough, both Aaron and Moses will die without entering the promised land. After, you know, it always has seemed to me to be kind of unfair. I mean, everything that Moses has been through, everything that Moses has done, the occasions on which Moses has argued with yes, God and persuaded yes. God to stay with the Israelites and protect God's reputation and on and on and all of the rebellion and quarreling that Moses has had to put up with on God's behalf. And he just seems the epitome of a good and faithful servant. But here... He disobeys. It might even just be out of negligence. Not listening carefully enough to God. But he didn't do as God commanded him to do. And he will not enter the promised land. Um, you know, it's one of those stories that makes me really grateful for Jesus. Truly, truly, um, because I, I know how often <laughs> I'm not obedient. I don't do what I think God would command me to do. I'm just, you know, I think we're all like that. But here, Moses, this is the moment. If you ask, if you, you know, once you discover that Moses is under the promise line, you have to ask yourself why. Well, the why, the answer to the why is right here. The buried in the book of Numbers, chapter 20, verse 12. These were the waters of Meribah. where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. So, it's a place that's called Meribah. It means something. I can't read it here on my, on my iPad. I forget what Meribah means. Somebody knows from their footnotes. You can type it in for everybody, but these were the waters of Meribah where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. Wow. 
You know, I, I, I know how the story goes. I know what's happening. I know Moses is disobedient, but it's still... Still makes me very... Kind of upset on behalf of Moses. But there's no protest for Moses. He knows. He knows. It's a little back, it's a little bit like the story of Saul, though really very different, but the first king of Israel, King Saul, is also disobedient. He just you know, he there are a couple of occasions where he is gonna do what he thinks is right. And Moses here um, is told by God to speak to the rock, and instead he strikes the rock and is disobedient. Okay, Josie Teeter found it for me. Meribah means a place of quarreling. Well, okay, that makes sense. Thank you, Josie. It is so strange, though, right, of all the things. Is that our yard crew out there? They're at the house next door. Huh. Okay. What, you, what were you going to say, Patty? It's still just so strange to me that, as you said, all the arguing on behalf of the Israelites that, that Moses did to God pleading and begging, that God never got upset over those things. And yet this, and the other strange thing to me is, even though he didn't follow exactly what God said, instead of speaking it, he struck the rock twice, the water still poured out. So God still allowed the miracle to happen of the water pouring out of the rock. Yes. Raises a lot of questions, it though, does. doesn't it? That, sure that, does. That would, you know, and I, I resist think... easy answers to it all. Um, so sorry about our neighbor's guy. Who... I mean, I told him not to come today. Well, they're not at our house. They're okay. the house next door, blowing all their leaves on our yard. <laughs> they're going to show us, huh? <laughs> all right. All righty. All right, so anybody have anything they want to add to that? About Moses and the waters of Meribah? Neither Moses nor Aaron's going to enter the promised land. Okay, verse 14. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Now let me show you where Edom is. Let me go to my maps here. Okay, look on the right side of your computer screen in the map there and look about halfway down you'll find the land of Edom it is on the eastern side of the map Moab is north of Edom both are east of a line that would connect the Arabian Gulf with the Dead Sea there's no there's no river there because the water flows into the Dead Sea stays there which is why it's called the Dead Sea but anyway there we go. So, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh Barnea, Kadesh, to the king of Edom, saying, This is what your brother Israel says. You know about all the hardships that have come on us. Our ancestors went down into Egypt, and we lived there many years. The Egyptians mistreated us and our ancestors, but when we cried out to Yahweh, he heard our cry and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now we are here at Kadesh. 
a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country. We will not go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or to the left until we have passed through your territory. So this little map here, I don't know, they're attempting to put the king's highway on there. There we go. You can see it running through the middle of Edom. Okay. Now, what is the origin of Edom? Can you remember from the book of Genesis? These are the descendants of Esau. Oh, yes, the, the descendants of Esau. Yes. So, but Edom answered, you may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. And the Israelites replied, we'll, we'll go along the main road. And if we are our livestock, drink any of your water, we will pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. And again, the Edomites answered, You may not pass through. Then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army, you know, like a raid against them, not fighting, just showing them their large and powerful army. And since Edom refused to let them go through their territory, Israel turned away from them. So they are turned away from the Edomites. They're wandering. They're going to wander for 40 years. This whole section of numbers is actually pretty short. And it makes it easy to forget that they're wandering 40 years. Well, the whole Israelite community sent out from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. H-O-R. So I'm going to call up another map I have. This is, I don't know, I got busy with arrows earlier. There we are turning back and then making their way a little bit north, a little bit east. And there is Mount Hor. Just, a, just, just, it's sort of very near the, um, let's see if it up. There we go. You can see it if you, if you look at the Dead Sea and you look south, you can see this little triangle that says Mount Hor, just northwest of the number 13. So speaking of what I was saying a second ago, so let's take a look at this map. This map encompasses the exodus through all the decades until they finally enter the Promised Land. Now, if you go to number 11, can you find 11 there? And then you go northward. This is where they're going after they leave Mount Sinai. We've been through this. 12, there's Kadesh. And this is where they chicken out. And so it's got, got the loop. And then they go back down and they make their way north. Understand that 40 years of wandering actually is there. Where they go and all of that, we can't say. These are not far distant places. They're just going to wander yes. for 40 years through all this. It's, it's something. So, they go to Mount Hor. At Mount Hor, near the border of Edom, Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron will be gathered to his people. Which means, what do you think that's a metaphor for? He will be gathered to his people. Someday I will be gathered to my people. 
we're all in the end gathered to our people because it's speaking of death. He will not enter the land I give the Israelites because both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Get Aaron and his son Eleazar and take them up Mount Hor. Remove Aaron's garments, put them on his son Eleazar, for Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will die there on this mountaintop. So here is this mountaintop. That's believed to be Mount Hor. Um, that's just so desolate, isn't it? Yes. Wow. Really. Wow. Wow. This is nothing like going up the top of Pike's Peak or anything. So, verse 27, Moses did as Yahweh commanded. They went up Mount Hor in the sight of the whole community. Moses removed Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar. And Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when the whole community learned that Aaron had died, all the Israelites mourned him for 30 days. Because he is a significant person. Yes, he, is. he doesn't get a lot of press. It's all about Moses. But you remember when Moses meets God at the burning bush... One of the complaints, he says, one of the rationales he gives God for not taking on the assignment God has for him, he says, well, I don't speak very well. And God says, well, Aaron's going to go with you. He'll speak for you. So what is actually happening when Moses confronts Pharaoh is that God talks to Moses, Moses talks to Aaron, and Aaron talks to Pharaoh. It isn't written that way all the time, but that seems to be how it was happening. And now Aaron has passed. The first priest of Israel. And now his priestly office has been passed to his son Eleazar. For it is a... Um, it, it passes in the lineage in this way. Okay? One more bit, and then the next bit we're going to save for next week. When the king, chapter 21, when the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, the Negev, it's not a word we use a lot, but it is important. The Negev is simply this wilderness area, sort of between Jerusalem and the places in the south. If you find the wilderness of Zen where my two little red arrows are and you go north, Sometimes it's spelled with a B at the end. Sometimes it's spelled with a V at the end. Same thing. It's just, it's kind of a wilderness. It is a wilderness area there. So when the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israelite was coming along the road to Atherim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to Yahweh. If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will destroy their cities. The cities of Arad, the king Arad. Yahweh listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They complete, the Israelites, that's who we're speaking of, completely destroyed them and their towns. So the place was called Hormah. So it's... You know, this will be a pattern that is followed when they arrive in the promised land, when they have to make places to live, but there's already people there. 
And so in the book of Joshua is a book of conquest. And when they do as God instructs them to do, they succeed. When they don't do what God instructs them to do, they fail. So when we come back next week, um, I'm going to save the bronze snake, which is another memorable moment from the book of Numbers for next week. And we will pick up right there in chapter 21, verse 4, with the bronze snake. So, do you have anything else today, Patty? I don't, Scott. I don't have anything else to add. Okay. Well, do you want to come around then? I sure will. I'm glad it got quiet out there. I didn't stay too long. You know why? There's really no leaves to blow into anybody's yard. They all blew away yeah, last week. I mean, week. really, that's what I told them on Saturday, was this? So it just wasn't any need to come. All it's right. all cleaned up and hadn't changed. That's right. No. That's right. Okay, my love. All righty. Well, we're glad y'all were with us today and hope many of you will be able to join us tomorrow in person or online as we continue to go through the book of Acts, which we've really just started. You haven't missed hardly I only did 11 verses. 11 verses. You I will can summarize read those, those quite tonight. easily. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or you could come and he'll, I'm sure, right? You'll probably go back over them. Yeah. Yeah. From yeah, the beginning yeah, sure. tomorrow. So it's really a fun class. It's a busy class. There's a lot of people that come. Um, hope that you'll join us. All righty. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you, God, for the rain. And we thank you, God, that it is not sleeting and snowing and icing here. We are very grateful for that, Lord. We pray, God, that you would be with us this evening as we go about our lives. And, Lord, we pray that you would hold each one of us close to you. We pray, God, always for your wisdom and your discernment in our lives, Lord. We pray for good health for ourselves and our family. And we pray, God, that you would help keep us safe. Lord, bring us back together next Monday as we continue this journey through numbers, which has just been such an eye-opening surprise, I think, for many of us. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So come back next week for the bronze snake. <laughs> Adios, everybody. Bye, everybody.